You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Good day, everyone. My name is Charlie Bastman, and today I'll be a guest interviewer on behalf of Real Vision. I've had an episodic macroeconomic commentary as the convexity maven, and I currently manage a hedge fund of one, me. Prior to this, I spent 35 years on Wall Street, where my claim to fame is that I created the Move Index, and the VIX, which is the VIX for bonds. Uh, I have been invited to be an expert inquisitor to draw out the thoughts of our guest, Eric Norland. Eric is the executive director and senior economist at the CME Group. He's responsible for generating economic analysis on global financial markets by identifying emerging trends and evaluating economic factors and forecasting their impact on the CME group, the company's business strategy, and upon those who trade in its various markets. Prior to joining the CME group, Eric gained more than 15 years experience in the financial services industry, working for investment banks and hedge funds, both the United States and France. Eric holds a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from St. Mary's College, Maryland, and a master's in statistics from Columbia University in New York. He's also a CFA. Eric, where to start? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me not put you on the spot, but we are speaking slightly before the Fed releases their statement. So I'm not going to ask you to predict the outcome, but from 30,000 feet, how do you think the Fed's policies since the start of the pandemic have impacted the markets? And maybe more broadly, since the uh, GX uh, financial crisis in '09. Well, you know, thank you so much for 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 agreeing to do this. It's just a tremendous pleasure to talk with you, Harley, especially given your incredibly long experience in the real trenches of you know options trading. Um, yeah, I think the Federal Reserve uh, has a bigger impact on options markets than many people realize. Um, yeah, I think that when people think of options, they often think of it in terms of you know, volatility spiking in response to short-term price changes or kind of drifting downwards as markets calm down. Uh, but I think central bank liquidity plays a really key role in all of this. Um, and in particular, since March, um, since the you know, COVID crisis kind of got to its acute phase in, in the financial sense, uh, the central banks, including the Federal Reserve, but also its peers around the world, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, Bank of England, et cetera, um, they have really tried to keep a lid on market volatility. Uh, but I think they've been more successful in some areas than others. Uh, they have gotten Volatility on short-term interest rates, obviously, to come down to exceedingly low levels. You see that in futures on the euro dollar. Uh, you see it on five-year government bond futures as well. You even see it as far up as 10 years. Um, and you also see it in the currency markets, too. You know, the currency markets were very disjointed for a while in March when there was a sort of incipient dollar funding crisis. Uh, the central banks got together and provided massive swap lines, really kind of clamped down on that volatility so when you look at the major exchange rates, the implied volatilities are now mostly down to where they were pre-pandemic. Um, where they have had less success, however, um, are things in areas that they have less control over. Um, so very long-term interest rates, for example, if you look at 30-year U.S. Treasuries, 
Um, implied volatilities are obviously way down from their peak levels in March, uh, but they're significantly above where they were trading, say, 12 months ago, pre-pandemic. Um, they also mentioned VIX earlier on. If you look at uh, the options on the NASDAQ, the S&P, or the Russell 2000, um, they're also, you know, obviously way off their highs, but they're trading, you know, it's significantly higher volatilities than they were, say, 12 months ago, or especially two or three, four years ago. Um, and you also see that lastly in gold and silver. Um, yeah, I think that the central bank's creation of liquidity, the Federal Reserve doing $3 trillion of QE in a three-month period of time between March and May, that sent the NASDAQ flying, it sent gold and silver flying. Silver went up 155% uh, between March and August. Gold went up 40%. The NASDAQ, as we know, had a huge rally. It kind of petered out in early September. And I think that made options traders really nervous. You know, I think that you know, option traders looked at these movements, kind of thought to themselves, okay, this could either go a lot further to the upside, in which case, you know, maybe call options need to be more expensive, or it could all snap back and go the other way, uh, which makes put options also, I think, really expensive on those kinds of assets. You know, I, I, it occurs to me, and I hadn't really thought about this too much before, but and I, I don't want to get into the weeds uh, out of the gate here, but I, I will. Do you think the impact, the repression of volatility which is certainly, you know, plan B or plan A of what the Fed wants to do. I mean, it's part of their policy is to reduce volatility uh, for lots of reasons. But do you think it's, be, it's the primary driver is taking rates down and compressing the curve? Or is the greater impact the selection of securities they use? So buying mortgage securities, which have an embedded optionality, by buying those, they reduce, they compress the optionality component, which is in the market, um, by buying credit securities or other things like that, because a, a credit bond is nothing more than a treasury and a, a default swap. So by buying those, so it, it, which is more important, the level of rate, the shape of the curve, or the security selection of what they're doing to create the repression? Yeah, I think it's, I think it all matters. I think that um, in a sense, the Federal Reserve can, has a pretty easy time repressing volatility at the short end of the interest rate curve, um, not only through setting interest rates at zero, but also through their forward guidance. Yeah, they can simply tell the market that we're not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. I mean, the Federal Reserve has essentially signaled to the market that there's uh, they're very unlikely to raise interest rates anytime in the next, say, two or three years, maybe even longer. Um, and I think the market um, kind of understands this in, in a deeper way now than they did, say, at the end of the global financial crisis. At the end of the global financial crisis in 2009, the Fed tried to communicate that, but the markets weren't as willing to believe it then as they are today. Uh, but, you know, when the Fed put rates at zero, or close to zero anyway, in December 2008, they left them there for seven years. And so this time, I think the market remembers that experience but says to itself, okay, you know, the Federal Reserve really can just put interest rates down there and just leave them there for like half a decade or more. Um, and so I think that really helps to clamp down on that volatility. Because you rightly point out, the Federal Reserve isn't just setting interest rates to zero. They're also doing QE. Some of that involves buying treasuries. Um, the Federal Reserve has never explicitly said that they're doing yield curve control. They've kind of avoided that language. Um, but nevertheless, buying large quantities of fives, tens, even 30-year bonds, um, does kind of put a cap on where those bond yields can go to on the upside. Um, and I think does help to suppress the volatility. And then lastly, 
I think maybe your, the most you know, interesting point is the Federal Reserve buying mortgages, but also buying corporate bond ETFs, which, as you rightly point out, have these options embedded in them. Um, and so when the Federal Reserve goes in there and starts purchasing these bonds, it's almost like they're buying options off the market um, you know, or actually kind of like writing insurance to the market, if you will. Um, and by doing that, they really have helped to keep corporate bond spreads very, very narrow. Um, if you look, for example, at the Credit Suisse um, or uh, Barclays indices of spreads versus U.S. Treasuries for corporate bonds, you know, this went from about four or five percent over Treasuries all the way up to a peak of maybe ten percent over Treasuries, and now they're trading at like three point six seven percent over Treasuries. So uh, the Federal Reserve has completely suppressed um, credit risk or not, not credit risk, I should say, but credit spreads rather. Credit risk is still there, but they've, they've kind of repressed the pricing of credit risk, if you will, um, in those markets. And I think that that's very much a product of, of that aspect of their QE, where they're not just buying treasuries, they're also buying mortgages, and they also did some corporate bond ETFs. Well, let's, let's, let's put your, your talents as an economist and as a, a, a market valuation person to test over here. Uh, once upon a time, actually, I would argue still, the best predictor of a recession is the yield curve. Um, and, and, and every time it happens, I remember you know, the last, you know, before this, in 08 and in 2000, uh, each time the curve flattened, everyone said it, it, it's different this time. And of course, it's, it's never different this time. Um, and once again, we had a yield curve uh, flatten invert before this. Um, and, and we had the recession, uh, but it was COVID that I suppose drove it. Is that actually the case that it was COVID that pushed us into the recession, or even without COVID, would the signal from the yield curve been correct? Oh, that's a great question. That's one I think about for a long time. And so, yeah, you're right. The yield curve did invert. It inverted actually quite a long time ago. It started to invert uh, really around the end of 2018, and it kind of stayed very flat or slightly inverted for much of 2019. Um, so to my mind, at the time, it was signaling a coming economic downturn. Um, I spend a lot of time studying yield curves, and I'm fascinated with them because they're not only a good predictor for the United States, but I have looked at, I can't remember exactly, but I think 20 or 26 different currencies around the world, and they correlate positively to economic growth across every single currency. Uh, to varying degrees. Some of them are not so good, like they're not such a great indicator in the Japanese yen, which is an interesting point. Um, but generally speaking, um, if you look at even countries like Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, South Africa, Russia, China, um, they correlate quite accurately with variations in the pace of economic growth. Um, and so I think we were heading for a pretty steep slowdown. And you know, between 2018 and 2019, the economy slowed from a 3% to a 2% growth rate. I think we were probably heading towards a very, very slow pace of growth in 2020 or 2021, in part because I think the Fed in 2018 and 2019 over-tightened. Um, now, that's not to say that the economic downturn that we had this year was primarily because of that tightening. And I think it was you know, unquestionably primarily because of the lockdowns related to COVID, uh, which were this sort of massive external shock, almost like, you know, almost like a meteorite striking the planet. You know? And so... Um, yeah, and that produced, I think, a much deeper economic downturn uh, than we ever would have had based on the yield curve alone. Uh, but what I think is kind of a little disconcerting with the yield curve right now, not just in the U.S., but in many countries, is that it's not very steep. 
if you look back to past economic recoveries, if you look back to, say, like 1992 or to 2003, for example, or to 2009 and 2010, the yield curve was really steep. You know, back then you would have, you know, maybe four to 500 basis points difference between three month and 30 year. Now that difference is like 150 basis points or 160 basis points generously. And so the yield curve is kind of pointing to potentially a very soft economic recovery. Um, and I'll just make one last point on this, which is the yield curve is not alone in pointing this out. Um, there's also futures on dividends, which I know are sort of an arcane thing. Uh, they were launched about, I think, six years ago at the end of 20, beginning of 2015. And those dividend index futures also, so that the market thinks that dividends in nominal terms will be the same or lower in 2030 than they are today. Um, so it's not just the yield curve, it's also the dividends forward curve. Um, that suggests that the market believes implicitly that we're in for some very soft economic growth. Well, I'm going to push back on that because uh, I have written about that topic extensively. And um, you do see an, still see an upward slope in the U.S. and in the Nikkei, also of listed futures. But in Europe, um, one of the reasons you have a downward slope has to do with the creation of structured notes and the fact that Wall Street dealers who create them um, they, they can't take, they can't hold risk anymore. So they have to offload that risk because of you know, Dodd-Frank and everything else. Um, and that, I think, has put a lot of pressure on the, on the downside of dividends in Europe, which has created some very interesting trading opportunities. Um, but certainly, I mean, uh, the, the shape of the, of the ball structure, uh, dividend structure right now um, is not optimistic uh, in, in a lot of places where, where it has been in the past. Certainly back to this yield curve, do, do you think that, I mean, we did have the inversion in, in late 18, early 19, and, and the standard prediction is 17, 19 months from the inversion to the recession. And we got the recession in March, so it's almost like within weeks of what it was supposed to be. When we look at this thing 10 years from now, are we going to have a Roger Maris asterisk put by this recession, or are we just going to say, you know what, something happened and it worked? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Truthfully, I don't know the answer. I mean, I guess if you just put it into sort of like a naive computer model and you don't have any sort of dummy variables for the COVID experience, um, it's going to look like it worked. And you know what? It's got a lot of evidence behind it because it's been working for decades and decades and decades. Um, and you're right. It's I, I have spent a lot of time studying this. And the number I come up with is also 17 months sort of on average as a leading indicator. Um, now, 17 months might be slightly spurious degree of precision. You might say a year and a half, uh, but you know, it's about right. And so it tends to kind of get positively correlated about after six months, but weekly, and then very strongly correlated one to two years in the future. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's I think it's always going to be an asterisk because you know, unfortunately in economics, you can't do controlled experiments. And so I think we'll just have to be content to really never know the answers to what would have happened had COVID not struck. Uh, but you know, it strikes me that the Federal Reserve, even though they kind of realized something was amiss, that why, why they cut rates three times in 2019, even by March, February, March 2020, their policy was still pretty tight. Um, so I think that they were getting a little behind the curve uh, before, they, before COVID suddenly caused them to catch up with that curve and lower rates to zero in a real hurry. Well, I'm going to... I'll, for the record, I'm going to go give the curve uh, full credit for this. Uh, it, it, it counts. 
Um, the five-year, five-year forward rate dipped below the um, uh, the Fed funds rate uh, before COVID, which is also a very good signal of a recession. And um, you know, people are always asking me, like, especially when vols get very, very low, which which they they did uh, prior. They always say, "What's the surprise going to be?" And of course, the answer is, I don't know. If I knew, it wouldn't be a surprise. There's always a surprise that happens. It happens regularly. It's got to do something. Um, and uh, I, I guess the surprise was COVID, but I'm not sure it's fair to go and say they, they you know, credit for that because the surprise. We're, we're, we're looking at, I, are we having yield curve control right now? Uh, I think yes, but not explicit, but, but out there. Let's assume we are. How is, would yield curve control right now as executed in some manner, fashion, or form, and we might hear more details about it in a few hours, how might that be different than the yield curve control that occurred uh, post-war in the 50s? Well, yeah, I think that the yield curve control in the 1940s was, was very interesting. I mean, I guess it started towards sort of the end of our involvement in the Second World War. And the idea was that the federal government's debt had ballooned from, I don't know, maybe 30 percent of GDP going into the war up to 110 percent. There's just this tremendous amount of debt. Federal government had to figure out how to finance it. Um, and, you know, keeping a cap on long term government bonds was, um, you know, part of the way in which they could do that. Uh, but, you know, getting out of yield curve control proved not to be so easy because once you put it in place and then if you suddenly stop it, you could see a huge upward move in long term interest rates, uh, which could be potentially you know, sort of disruptive for an economic recovery, maybe or maybe beneficial to the recovery, too. It's hard to say. Um, but you know, this time around, I think the Federal Reserve so far has done it pretty subtly. Um, they've so far, and you're right, maybe in a few hours this will change. Uh, but so far, they haven't really said they're doing anything explicit, and they have been allowing the 30-year and 10-year yields to drift up slightly. I think we have 10 years up to 0.9, 30 years getting close to 1.7% yields. Um, but my kind of fear for the Fed is they're getting themselves into a bit of a trap. Um, I think by suppressing long-term interest rates and doing all this QE, um, including up to the long end of the curve, they sent the equity market soaring to these incredible record highs, um, you know, where it's price-earnings ratio, other kind of valuation metrics um, are at quite high levels. And so I think in order, if they were to suddenly stop buying long-term bonds and see those bond yields spiking higher, eventually people may start switching out of equities into bonds. Um, in which case you could see a substantial sell-off in some of these risk assets, um, which in turn has the potential to damage confidence for, from consumers and from businesses and to maybe derail the recovery. Uh, so I think the Federal Reserve has gotten itself into a little bit of the trap now where it's kind of started to do this, but now it doesn't really know how to stop. Is QE in general, uh, yield control more specifically, is, is that good public policy? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, my, I've tried to enough analyze QE and its impact on economic growth across uh, pretty much every economy that's tried it. And so you know, starting in 2009, we had you know, 
kind of the first QEs from the uh, European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the Federal Reserve, um, as well as a is a much larger and much more aggressive QE attempted by the Bank of Japan. Um, and for the most part, I think it's really hard to discern any impact on on GDP growth uh, from uh, from those QEs. Yeah, the Federal Reserve really ramped up its balance sheet, but when they would ramp it up in waves, it wasn't obvious that the economy showed much of a response to it, or if it did, it was a very, very small response. Um, the one exception, though, is Japan. Uh, Japan just did it orders of magnitude bigger. You know, they took their balance sheet from maybe 30% of GDP up to over 100% of GDP. Uh, but where they did differently than the Fed, the Fed's earlier rounds of QE prior to this one, uh, we're focused mainly on treasuries and mortgage bonds, uh, where the Bank of Japan went way down in credit quality. They went all the way down to equity ETFs. Uh, so they're actually basically buying the stock market as well as doing other things. And Japan seemed to get a little bit more of a boost, but even there, it wasn't dramatic. You know, Japan got its inflation rate from you know, maybe negative half a percent up to maybe half positive half a percent, positive one percent. And they seem to get their economy doing a little bit better. But you know, again, it's not a control experience. It's Japan kind of improved its growth and they would do things like increase the value added tax to reduce their budget deficit. Um, so my impression of QE is kind of like one hand gives and the other one takes away. Uh, so on the one hand, the central bank's creating liquidity. It's buying bonds, uh, which should probably by itself stimulate growth. On the other hand, it seems to be flattening the yield curve. And as it flattens the yield curve, um, it makes lending less profitable. You know, part of the ways in which banks make money is they borrow short and lend long. So when the yield curve is super steep, they make a lot of money and they extend a lot of credit. Um, you know, so when the Federal Reserve or other central banks kind of flatten out the yield curve through QE, it makes that lending less profitable. So you know, banks may, in theory, say, okay, well, you know, you can get this incredibly cheap mortgage or incredibly cheap corporate loan. But then they don't really extend that credit to everybody except their best borrowers, who may be people or entities who don't really need um, to borrow at cheap rates. And they may sort of deny credit or charge higher rates on credit uh, for less creditworthy borrowers. Um, so it may not, in fact, really boost economic growth all that much. I mean, I, I, I've written about this extensively. I mean, I think the QE1 in 09 was required. Uh, past that, not really. I think what the Fed did here in March was required initially. Uh, we're a financial economy. The world is with leverage. Therefore, the plumbing has to keep working. Uh, and so they had to salvage that. Um, in the curve is, is bothersome to me because it's um, you're taking it's, it's not a universal good. You're taking money from someone and giving it to someone else. So you're hurting pensioners, insurance companies, savers, giving money to other people. So it's not like it's a it's a free goodie that the government's giving out. They're basically transferring wealth from one pocket to the other, which is unclear. And if you look at the Social Security, Medicare, you know, problems of the future, they are ginormous and getting bigger. But let's circle back to Japan. I have a double question for you. Um, I mean, I believe inflation is coming. A lot of people do. Why hasn't it worked in Japan? And then linked to that is, are negative rates possible in the U.S.? Okay, yeah. So let's take that first question about inflation. Um, I think that's a really fascinating question. And so my argument is that QE has created enormous inflation, but it's not the kind of inflation that you may associate with being inflation. Um, 
And so I think when we think about inflation, we tend to think of things like the consumer price index or maybe the producer price index, things like that, things we experience when we go out to stores and buy goods. Um, but we just haven't seen a lot of inflation in any developed country um, in over a quarter of a century. You really have to go back kind of pre-1994 um, or maybe even pre-1992 to really see a lot of inflation um, happening. And so I think the question is, what happened to the economy? Um, and so basically, I think we've had a lot of changes in the structure of the global economy over the last quarter century or over the last maybe 40 years or so um, that have kind of put a lid on consumer price inflation for the very simple reason that there are very few workers who are in a position to negotiate for higher wages in developed countries. Um, that's true in Japan. It's true in Western Europe. It's true in the United States, Canada and Australia, New Zealand, um, et cetera. Um, in our kinds of countries, our workers in the trade and goods sector are put into fierce competition with workers in much lower wage countries, including China. Um, China's wages are coming up, but they're still quite low. India, Indonesia, Latin America, Africa, other places. Um, and so that really keeps kind of a lid on that sector. You also have rapidly advancing technology, putting a lot of pressure on service sector wages, a lot of middlemen being cut out. Um, so you have that aspect of it. Um, and then you also have, um, I think, another phenomenon that's sort of not really thought about as often, but it's also the tremendous amount of mergers and acquisitions. Um, if you would work, say, on Wall Street 40 years ago, you would have been able to choose all sorts of banks to work for. E.F. Hutton, Shearson Lehman, you know, tons of different banks could have potentially hired you. Now we're down to just a few big banks. And so those banks don't have to compete so hard for talent. It's hard to go from one to the other. You also Corporations make their employees sign a lot of non-compete agreements and NDAs and things like that to make it hard to transfer employers. And it's not true just on Wall Street. I mean, you look at the airline industry. There used to be 50 airlines in the U.S. Now we're down to basically four. Um, it's true across almost every sector. There's been massive consolidation. That's created, created um, a sort of monopsony, if you will, on hiring, uh, where the employers don't have to compete that hard for talent. And the workers are basically price takers rather than price makers um, in many, many sectors. Um, and so I think what happens when central banks create excess liquidity now, it doesn't create wage inflation. Um, instead, what's going on is it creates asset price inflation. Um, so when central banks create excess in liquidity, you see the price of gold and silver, the price of equities beginning to soar. Uh, but you don't see consumer staples goods prices moving very quickly. You may see some other goods like wine, uh, real estate, artwork, you know, that kind of thing may start to move in price. Um, but I think that, you know, as we've gone from a society that's sort of relatively equal with strong labor negotiating power uh, to a much less equal society without much labor bargaining power, um, you don't really see a lot of consumer price inflation. I say that true and pish posh. I would say, don't you think demographics? is actually the iceberg, which is 90% underwater. Like we're looking at the at, at technology and service sector and globalization, which is all true. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we have a big inflation as the massive baby boom cohort moves through the world. And we had inflation peaking as the boomer cohort was hitting like age 32, which is peak household formation, have a kid, have a wife, or husband, um, get a car, get a house, 
furnish the house, buy the washing machine, all these things. Also, you're, you're spending your peak earning and you're demanding those goods from the prior generation that's smaller. So you have more aggregate demand for less supply. And thus, um, as the labor force growth rate went up, so did prices. Using the last 40 years rolling down, um, I believe that you're going to see the labor force growth rate turn up in the next decade, starting basically three to five years from now. And thus, I will find that you're going to see inflation um, at the consumer level increase because of that. Do you buy into that or not? So I would say I'm curious about that theory. I wouldn't say I'm yet convinced by it, but I think it has something to it. Um, you know, when the baby boom generation came in to the labor force in a very large way, uh, productivity growth suffered for a while because you know young workers. No offense to the young millennials, you know, or young baby boomers back in the, you know, back in the '70s when they were entering the labor force. You know, generally speaking, the most productive workers are the people in their peak earning years who are in their 50s or so. And the least productive ones are the ones who are just learning the ropes and just coming into the economy. Um, so as you tend to get these big movements into the labor force, you can have periods of low productivity growth. And so between 73 and 82, productivity growth was like 0.9% per year. And you fast forwarded to, say, the 1990s and the 2000s, productivity growth was growing more like 2 or 3% per year, uh, which meant the economy had a much higher speed limit, you know, below which it would not generate inflation. Um, so there may be something to that. Um, but I think there's been other changes too. I mean, when you look back at that economy we had in the 60s and 70s, um, it wasn't just that the baby boomers were coming into the labor force. It was also at that time that the top 1% of earners earned about 10% of the income. Now they earn about 20%. So you have a lot more inequality. Um, you know, I think in response to that 70s inflation, uh, when you look back to the 79 election here in the United Kingdom or to the 80 election um, in the United States, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan offered essentially a solution. And at that time, when they came to power, the top marginal tax rate in the UK was 83%, and the top marginal tax rate in the US was 70%, uh, which basically, if you sort of take the reciprocal of that, it means in the UK, if you were a top earner, you could keep 17 pence for every 100 pence you earned. You know, and so in the U.S., it would have been 30 cents for every dollar you earned. Um, and so by the end of Reagan and Thatcher, those tax rates had come down from 83 percent to 40 percent in the U.K. and from 70 percent to 28 percent under Reagan. Since then, of course, they've gone up a little bit. It's now at 45 in the U.K. and you know, kind of 40-ish in the U.S. once you take everything into account. Um, but basically, the incentives to produce were vastly increased. So I think that we kind of re-incentivize people to produce a lot more goods. And of course, you had globalization with that as well. You know, international trade in the 70s was 5% of GDP in the U.S. Now it's closer to 15 or 16%. Uh, so you have a tripling of international trade. Um, and so I think all of these things have increased the productive capacity of the economy. So I kind of wonder, in this context, will the echo boom when the millennials enter the labor force, will it have the same inflationary impetus as when their parents or in some cases, maybe grandparents who are baby boomers entered the labor force? And you know, I, to me, it's a question mark. I don't know the answer. So you're not an inflation bug then? Yeah, I'm not really. No. And see, the other thing is like we've seen gold prices store and I know that gold bugs are often inflation bugs. But, you know, gold prices went from $280 an ounce in 2000 to 
almost 2,000 announcing 1,900 announced by 2011. And his gold prices, you know, quintupled during that period of time. Um, you didn't see a big rise in consumer price inflation. Um, so, you know, gold prices are soaring now. Silver prices are soaring. Um, asset prices in general are doing very well. But I don't know. I kind of think, you know, when you look at the state of the labor force coming out of this recession and out of this pandemic, I mean, how many workers are in a position to demand higher wages? I think probably not very many. Um, so I would really have to see unemployment get below 5%, maybe get back below 4% before I became convinced. And you know, even in 2019, when unemployment was 3.5%, you still didn't see a lot of inflation. That's kind of what perplexed me about the Federal Reserve having tightened so much um, in 2017 and 2018. Um, even with unemployment that low, you didn't see a big rise in wages. And without a big rise in wages, it exceeds the rise in productivity growth. Where is inflation going to come from? Can I ask you about gold? Your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think that gold is sort of the ultimate store of value. You know, it does it's it's not used for very much other than it has like a few minor uses for dentistry. I have some gold in my teeth, for example. Um, it has a small use in electronics, but basically, its overwhelming use is jewelry and to be stored in vaults. Um, and uh, you know, I think that it's I think that it's uh, very very sensitive to uh, changes in central bank balance sheets, which I think explains why it's been doing well. And I think its outlook is difficult to say, but I think its outlook really depends on how much stimulus do we get out of Washington. You know, do they do a little stimulus, or they call it relief these days, a little relief or a lot of relief? And if they do a lot of relief, does the Federal Reserve allow those bonds to be sold into the market and steepen the yield curve? Or does the Federal Reserve step up its QE program and absorb a lot of that additional debt? Um, and if they do the latter, I think it's more likely gold prices will have another big rally than if they do the former. If they just allow the debt to be issued but don't buy it, um, let the market absorb it, then I think gold maybe doesn't do so well. Circling back to the top again, uh, I've done a lot of work on yield curve and volatility, but specifically rate volatility. Um, and, and the yield curve seems to be the, uh, the best correlation. Uh, of those two. You've done much more work on this across assets and across markets. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your big thoughts on, on this? So, yeah, you know, I think it's one of the weirdest phenomenons I've ever seen in economics, um, which is that the yield curve shape, I think, correlates very strongly with the sort of general level of volatility in uh, the S&P 500 and other equity indices um, with gold and silver um, as well as with a number of other assets, long-term government bonds, like 30-year bonds, for example. Um, and the way in which it works is this. Uh, to my mind, what happens is when the central bank begins raising interest rates and flattens out the yield curve, um, it typically takes about, you know, coming back to 17 months, you know, typically about one to two years' time, so say a year and a half on average, you start seeing a rise in volatility. It's like the central bank starts taking out the liquidity. Um, and as that happens, a day comes when somebody attempts a big transaction in the market and there's nobody there on the other side of the nearby price. And so prices have to move a lot in order to get that order filled, which then knocks people out of other options trades um, or other trades that may not have to do with options, but you know, may start as markets moving, people get knocked out of, they may have stops in the market, et cetera. So a big cascade. And market volatility rises. 
Um, so typically when you have a flat yield curve and high volatility, which we had, uh, say, in 1990, we had it again around the year 2000, around the year 2007, and in 2019, you wind up seeing, you wind up seeing a rapid rise in volatility. And the central bank usually sees it during this time, the economy begins to go into a recession. And they respond to this by lowering interest rates and steepening the yield curve. And so then you have a few years period where you have a steep yield curve and still high levels of volatility. Because when the central bank eases policy, Volatility usually does not subside immediately. It usually takes a few years, you know, again, 17 months or so, maybe on average, for it to begin coming down. Um, and then as it begins coming down, the economy starts recovering. And, you know, with generous liquidity, uh, that eventually gets injected into the markets and it makes it very easy for sellers to find buyers and buyers to find sellers. So, you know, once again, you can start doing huge executions in the market without moving the market prices very much. Um, and so then you kind of get this mid-expansion phase where you're typically in the middle of an expansion. You know, like we had, um, you know, kind of like by 93, 94, for example, or uh, by, uh, say, 2004, uh, or by 2014, for example. Um, you typically have a steep yield curve and really low volatility. And then the central bank often decides, okay, it's safe. Uh, we can begin raising interest rates again. And they start hiking interest rates, start flattening out the yield curve. And then you know, maybe for a year and a half or so, again, you have this period where you have really low volatility, but also a flat yield curve, uh, which was the case in, say, 1996, 2006, early 2007. Uh, we had it again um, in 2016 and 2017. Um, and then you start seeing the rise in volatility. So federal, or the central bank starts taking that volatility out. So the cycle just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Um, I think in order to see the cycle, I usually take two-year moving averages of the yield curve uh, versus two-year moving averages of volatility. And when you graph that, you see this cycle that just keeps repeating itself in a loop over and over and over again. But I kind of wonder, are we now at the end of the cycle? Uh, as the central bank in the U.S. is now not allowing the yield curve to steepen, but they're attempting to suppress volatility through other means, uh, through quantitative easing. So maybe that cycle has now reached its conclusion. Mm. And, and uh, we didn't answer the question, are, are negative rates possible? Not are they going to do it at all, but is, is it possible in the U.S.? So, I mean, I think it is possible. Um, I mean, we've seen that it is possible in a number of other currencies. So it's clearly possible in the euro area. The reserve currency, though. So it's a, it's yeah, different. Yeah, that's true. The euro, the euro rate, it's not the global reserve currency, but it's still used very significantly in trade. I think it's something like 25% or so of global central bank reserves are held in the euro um, compared to 60% in the US dollar. Um, and in terms of actual trading transactions, the euro at times is almost pulled even with the dollar. I saw some study recently saying, yeah, with a few months ago, that kind of came even with the dollar as a it's a global transaction currency. It's typically below the U.S. dollar, but it's still a significant currency. Um, but, you know, we've seen negative rates in small currencies, too, like in the Swiss franc and uh, the Swedish kroner, um, also in the yen, which is a pretty significant currency. Um, 
I would say it's not impossible, but I really have a hard time seeing the Federal Reserve doing it because they've kind of told us that they really don't want to do it. Um, and I think if you look at the the economic analysis in Europe and Japan, um, there are mixed opinions on this. I've heard people on both sides of my own sort of sense of it uh, from looking at the data myself is it really did not work in a sense it did not improve Europe's or Japan's economic growth rate to have negative rates. But do you have a different view of that? Do you have a view that it did help? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I think it hasn't helped. I think it's idiocy, and I think it can never happen in the U.S. One, because of the reserve currency. Two, because we're a financial economy, uh, and you take rates negative, and basically you rip apart the plumbing of a massively levered system. Uh, and number three, I, mean, I think you'd see people uh, with uh, pitchforks and torches uh, attacking the, the the Fed as you made their bank accounts go go, go negative. So I mean, I, I think it's 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 it's, it's it's not reasonably possible in the U.S. Uh, hopefully, they'll keep their their heads on. So, um, okay, let's let's go to the third rail here. Um, I'm you, Chicago. You're Columbia. Those schools are actually very uh, similar in in how they think about the world. Um, MMT. What do you think? So, I mean, I think that we have stumbled. Oh, audience doesn't know. Sorry, that's modern monetary theory, and maybe you want to give a brief outline of it. Yeah, so I mean, I think we have kind of unintentionally stumbled into modern monetary theory. So modern monetary theory uh, basically um, essentially says that, you know, under certain circumstances, it makes sense for the central bank to directly fund the government. Uh, so the government can run large budget deficits and the central bank can essentially buy all of that debt and hold it on its balance sheet and everything will be fine and the economy will grow. Um it, you know, and if there is inflation that results from that, um, the, the federal government or the government can deal with that by raising taxes and cutting spending. Uh, so basically, instead of the central bank controlling inflation, the onus then becomes on essentially in the United States, the Congress uh, to control uh, inflation by adjusting taxes and spending levels. Um, so to my mind, this sort of reminds me, uh, we kind of hinted at supply-side economics earlier on, what Reagan and Thatcher did. Uh, Reagan and Thatcher came in with this problem that they faced of exceptionally high inflation and very volatile economic growth that was kind of a product of the uncertainty created by that high inflation. Um, and they promised to get inflation down uh, by you know, tightening monetary policy or anyway, supporting tight monetary policy from Paul Volcker um, and from the Bank of England, and also by slashing taxes and getting rid of a lot of government regulations to improve the economic growth rate. And so it's kind of seemed to work. Um, but you know, supply-side economics also produced a lot of side effects. And I think the side effects of it were generally rising levels of debt and generally rising levels of inequality. Um, so you know, I think modern monetary theory comes along and is kind of facing this problem of inadequate demand. Uh, the chief problem in the economy now is, is sort of the opposite of the 1970s. You know, rather than having too many consumers chasing too few goods, you now have this overhang of massive productive capacity 
that you have a lot of people who are no longer in a position to consume what they are producing uh, because they're out of jobs and you have the economy functioning below normal levels. And so modern monetary policy, I think, seeks to address that uh, by expanding out budget deficits and using the central bank to fund those budget deficits. Um, so in the short term, um, this is probably probably going to help get the economy back on track. It may not be a solution to everything, but it may help the economy get back on track. But the problem is, what are the side effects? And when do we start seeing those side effects? Uh, so I think the side effect we've seen so far is that asset prices have gone way up. And now, if asset prices start to correct, the central banks may find themselves in a position where they feel obliged to do more QE to prevent a deeper correction. But then getting back to your earlier point, further in the future, once we get closer to full employment, does it then create consumer price inflation and wage inflation that outstrips productivity growth? Um, and then what do we do about it, especially given that we'll have high debt levels, et cetera? Um, and that, I think, is going to be pretty tricky. I mean, I guess MMT, the idea is that you could, you could, if you print your own currency, you could borrow as much as you want, as long as there's spare capacity. And the signal for spare capacity being used up is inflation. Um, I suppose that's true in some weird sense, but I'd argue that that's like giving someone a box of candies and then saying, uh, here, here's your diet, stop eating when you're fat. Um, which is just not going to happen. I mean, the whole thing's preposterous. I, I don't see, how, how do we raise the spending level of what we give to people? And then at some point say, we're going to spend less. I've never seen the government ever cut the, the budget. Um, so the whole thing seems to be, you know, a, a short-term bomb that, that just takes us Ever quicker to 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 uh, uh, I won't say Armageddon, but 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 not not a good place. Yeah, we know. So if I could just add one thing to that, I mean, so in the 1990s, we turned a five percent of GDP deficit into a two percent of GDP surplus, and that was done by raising taxes. And we didn't actually cut spending, but we reduced its growth rate to below the growth rate of GDP. Um, so spending came down from maybe 20 to around 17% of GDP between the early 90s and 2000. Now, some of that was also the gift of the Cold War ending, so it's easy to cut defense spending. Um, that can't be done a second time. Um, in fact, if anything, you might argue in the current state of the world, defense spending may be more likely to trend upwards than downwards. Um, but also from 2009 to 2016, a deficit came from 10% to 2.5% of GDP. Um, that was done in a very passive way. Um, essentially, um, you know, at the end of 2012, the tax cuts that had occurred in 2001, 2003, as well as the 2009 payroll tax were all just allowed to expire. So we had this huge passive tax increase that nobody voted for. Uh, it was just that things, tax cuts that were enacted for about a 10-year period of time or temporarily just allowed to go away. Uh, so tax rates adjusted higher. And then we also had all the spending sequesters. You know, again, the government's budget was not actually cut in nominal terms, but it grew very slowly. Um, so I think it is possible to do that. But the question is, you know, will the political system allow for that to happen again? We don't really know the answer. Because the truth is the parties in power uh, that achieve those uh, periods of going from large deficits to small deficits, or in one case, surpluses, uh, they did not benefit politically from doing that. So I don't know if they'll have the willpower to do it a second time or a third time. <laughs> so, so, so what question have I not asked you yet that you have uh, strong thoughts on? Well, yeah, I think we've really pretty much covered it. But, you know, you have this incredibly rich history of trading 
options market. So as you see things today, where do you see things heading? Um, and, and how do your viewpoints sort of differ from a, uh, from things that I have expressed? Is that I, want, I want to learn from you. And I think everybody, everybody who's listening wants to learn from you because you've had the real long experience of doing this. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm listening to your description of volatility and the curve and you know, which comes first, the cart or the, or the horse uh, on this thing. I, I think on the other way around, um, I think volatility follows the curve. And, and I, I think the difference is this, that I'm really focused on interest rate vol, whereas your focus is more on economic vol, the VIX or on gold or on currencies, um, which are, are different animals. They, they, the, the VIX and the move and all these other vols, they, they tend to follow each other, but with a a big enough lag and a big enough wiggle where I would never advise anyone to, you know, buy one versus the other. Um, it's, it's just too volatile. But over the course of, of the cycle, you tend to see all balls rise and all balls decline. So in that sense, we're we're on the same page. I, I didn't think when you flatten the curve, it's really, um, it's, it, it's not a prediction of the economy per se. Um, it's that mathematically when you flatten the curve, you reduce uncertainty of where rates will be in the future. Because if you have a, a dead flat curve, 5% funds and 5% 10 years, then the forward rate is 5% also, and so why do you want to go and pay for that? Um, uh, if you have a very steep curve, a 2%, you know, two-year note, a 6% 10 year, then the forward rate's much, much higher. And since the forward and spot rates have to converge at some point, the wider that difference between spot and forward, the more uncertainty you have, and what is the price of uncertainty? Well, we, we call that volatility. Um, so that's kind of uh, how, how I see those things playing together. One kind of begets the other. Um, I, I, I'm very, I think we have had inflation, as you've noted. Uh, it's been an asset, gold, uh, real estate, uh, equities, uh, all these assets. And we have not had um, money flowing into CPI, which is real people. And that is because the money that's been printed has gone to assets, gone to it's gone to people who don't spend at the upper end of the uh, of the food chain. And what we need to do is find a policy where we push the money down, and that's fiscal policy as opposed to monetary policy. And so, the extent that we actually get real fiscal policy, um, which we might get a nine hundred billion dollar package very soon, I think that could be the the thing that changes the game here because you're also you're putting money into the hands of people who will spend it. And what we've seen is this collapse in velocity over the last decade. Um, now, velocity, does that really exist? Uh, not really. It's kind of the back end of the horse. You take GDP and, and, and money supply and figure it out. But nonetheless, it has collapsed. I mean, so I think to the extent that they could increase velocity, you'll get what everybody wants, uh, which is nominal GDP growth. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm really fascinated by. Uh, this whole concept of velocity of money and that sort of M times V is equal to P times Q equation, you know, where the quantity of money multiplied by how frequently it turns over its velocity is equal to nominal GDP price times quantity. Um, and so I, um, you know, I think that the, uh, I think that the problem with that sort of representation is it doesn't really tell you the price of what. Um, so now I tend to think of it as, you know, M times V or maybe M plus C, like money plus credit, if you will, um, is equal to 
the price of assets times the quantity of assets uh, times some factor, you know, um, equal to the price of consumer goods times the quantity of consumer goods plus, you know, one minus that factor. And that factor, you know, kind of describes the degree of which the economy is opened or closed or the degree of labor pricing power. And I think we're just in a world today where labor doesn't have much pricing power. It's hard to, for most workers to ask for higher wages. Um, so it's all going into asset prices. Um, and so I guess the question to my mind is, when does it eventually go back to consumer prices? And I think you would see that if wages start to grow more quickly than, uh, than productivity growth, um, which I think would require a tight labor market, uh, maybe greater labor protections. And you're starting to see this in, in a way. I mean, I think that you know, sort of move to clamp down on immigration in many countries to enact protectionist trade barriers, um, you know, as well as to kind of, you know, send everybody, say, $1,200 checks or extend unemployment benefits. They're all steps in that direction. But the question is, are they big enough steps to overcome rapidly advancing technology, to overcome globalization, which is still very much a fact of life in spite of, uh, you know, um, protectionism, and to overcome, as you said, the fact that a lot of this money that central banks creates goes into the pockets of people with a very low marginal propensity to consume, um, who are therefore investing it in things like equities and uh, you know, gold, silver, and other assets, real estate, et cetera. With inflation, let's call it 3 to 4% CPI inflation, so not 8 you know, or, or Zimbabwe. Uh, but not one or two either. Three to four is would that be a, a public policy good? That's a tough question. I mean, it would. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it would help us to bring down the levels of debt. Um, you know, so we have gotten debt levels to rise in the United States, for example. If you take public and private sector debt together, so household, corporate, and public sector debt has risen from about 125 percent of GDP in 1980 up to around 260% today. Um, and that trend in the US has been replicated in most other major economies, in China, um, in Europe, et cetera. Um, and certainly in Australia, South Korea, you can just go on this huge laundry list of countries. Um, and getting to higher levels of inflation may allow us to begin to reduce those levels of debt um, and allow us to get interest rates off of the zero interest rate bound more easily than we could with a lower rate of inflation. Um, but then if you do get inflation up to say three or 4%, then the question is what stops it then from going to five to six and then to seven to eight and then to 10%. Um, and the answer is typically tighter monetary policy. And I think that you know, when you had very low levels of debt relative to the size of the economy, like in say 1980, you know, then you had Paul Volcker. When you look back to 79 and 80, I mean, it's just crazy to think about this stuff. You know, back then, the Federal Reserve would, like on Saturday, announce that they were raising interest rates by 200 basis points. Can you imagine if the Federal Reserve did something like that today? I mean, it would just be simply almost unfathomable, right? Uh, so when you're at really high levels of debt, even small moves in interest rates can have big effects on the economy because the level of leverage is so much higher. Um, and so I think that, you know, the central bank could begin moving policy, but the economy in a sense is much more responsive and much more sensitive to small moves in rates now than it was in the past. Well, this has been terrific. I, I thank you very much. Do you have any other thoughts you want to add to close over here? You know, I don't really have any other thoughts to close, but if you have any, don't hesitate to jump in because 
you know, I felt like I've done a lot of the talking, but if you have any other closing thoughts, please just, just, you know, wrap it up. No, I, and it's I, been a tremendous pleasure. So thank you. That was great for me also. Thank you so very much. Um, you've, you've, you've been a very kind guest. This is my first time on this side of the table. Um, now I, I, I just think people should be, uh, you know, my advice to investors is always the same. Um, uh, entry level is, is not that important. Uh, sizing is more relevant. You uh, invest large enough to where uh, it'll impact your portfolio, but not so large that if you're wrong, it, it'll wipe you out. And I think if people kind of do that, they'll be, be better off. So anyways, thank you very much. Have a very good day. And I, I hope that things, uh, uh, that you are correct in what happens in the next few hours uh, with the Fed. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.